bringing us into his presence. I know that his presence is here. And I just want to appreciate our choir for what has been a wonderful time in his presence. God bless you. More anointing, more grace. You will go higher in Jesus' name. I just want to welcome all of us, those of us worshiping here with us today physically. You are welcome. I know there are quite a number of people joining us online as well. I just want to use this opportunity to say you are welcome. And um, on behalf of um, Dr. Okeonuzo and all the members of Kingdom Life Seminar, I welcome you and I pray we'll have a wonderful time in his presence in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today or this weekend, we consider the weekend we devote to marriage in our Kingdom Life Seminar series. And so... I'm going to be speaking on the subject of marriage. And in doing so, um, there are three things we will do. I'll cover some principles that I believe have worked for me and work in marriage. So it's really like sharing your own experience. You know, doctor has been teaching on this theme and other, you know, uh, marriage, um, I don't know if I'll call them experts or teachers, you know, have been speaking to us. So I know that we've had a lot. So really... The, 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 what I want to do is to just bring my own experience and perspective to it in a way that I hope will come alive for you because we all have an experience. Even for those looking to go into marriage, they have an expectation and they have a journey that they're undertaking. So that journey is important to God and is important to us. You know? And then we'll take questions. I think it's important that we take questions. So I would um, hope to leave more than enough time for questions and interaction. You might have perspectives you want to bring, you know, as I go through these principles that I want to share with us. And then finally, we shall pray. We'll pray briefly before we do the Holy Communion. So, having said that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I want to say thank you for the opportunity to stand here this morning. I do not take it for granted. I pray, my Father and my God, that your presence will fill this place that every one of us will experience you afresh today in Jesus' name, that your word will come alive, that every one of us, you will minister to us, that as we deal with this important subject of marriage, every one of us will be blessed, and our marriages will be blessed, and we will prosper in marriage, and we will prosper in this life, and we will we'll build true Christian homes that bring glory to you, honor to you, and blessings to us, and our light will shine amongst men, and many will follow because they will see that it pays to follow the principles that you have laid down in the Holy Scriptures. Father, help us, O Lord, and take all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, like I said, I, I want to share my share experience with us. And I've called it marriage principles that work. And I'm going to go through a number of these principles. And I, in no particular order. Okay. In no particular order. And um, we would then take some questions. I wanted to start from the very beginning. And when you think about the theme of marriage, the first thing I want to share with us, I want to submit to us, is that God has been involved in marriage from the very beginning. And that's important because, you know, at times, you know, doctor always tells us that, like, this is something we received. We're not reinventing it. We're not expected to come up with our own answers. 
is something, whether it's Christian faith as a whole, or even marriage really, you know, put in proper context, is something that God himself began. As the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18, then I'll jump to 21 to 23. These are all familiar scriptures. But it's to remind us that this is a journey you can go on, knowing that like, as the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.15, that what has been, like, you know, there's, you know, things, there's really nothing new in that sense. God has been, you know, playing this movie that we are part of now. We just have to humble ourselves and learn from what has been. Genesis 2.18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. In verse 21, it says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. I'm sure you will agree with me that this scripture is telling us that, you know, God has been involved in marriage from the beginning. And one of, this, one of the implications of this as a practical matter is that you can speak to God about your marriage. You can speak to God about getting into marriage. You can speak to God about the journey of marriage itself. And you certainly can speak to God about issues that come up in marriage. And God, through his Holy Spirit, will speak back to you. You know, and I believe that like, if we ask God, even questions like who to marry, God will speak to us. You know, because he's been involved from the beginning, frequently at times, even when we have not explicitly asked, if we're attentive, God will lead us in the right direction. And that was my own experience. I've shared this experience before, I believe, even in KLS. I certainly have shared it in a number of places. That on February 17, 1996, I remember it was a Saturday. You know, I had an experience that I will never forget. This morning on the prayer platform, while I, Pastor Ayo was leading us, he said everybody should think about their own encounter with God that they, don't, that they won't forget. As he was talking about the awesomeness of God and God's ability to rule in the affairs of men and the power of God, you know, to, to build our faith. And certainly this experience came to mind. Because on that particular day, you know, I remember it was a Saturday, like I said. I was sick. I had, I had come home for Christmas and I went back to where my um, place of um, work at the time, which happened to be Johannesburg in South Africa. And I had what I thought was malaria. But for some reason, it was not responding to treatment at all. You know, and I remember that day I had gone to dinner somewhere, but I couldn't even stay for the dinner. You know, and I went home to my apartment, and I was really scared. I was living alone at the time. I wasn't married. And, you know, and I was scared. And, it, and I just found myself in deep reflection. I was asking myself, what if I was dying? What if this was a terminal illness that was going to kill me? That who is even there to mourn me? And then the Spirit of God started to talk to me. I had what is clearly a divine encounter. God used that, you know, experience to speak to me. He spoke to me about marriage. Because he made me, you know, he opened my eyes to see, you know, how to think about marriage and who to marry. And of course, my wife is here today. You know, I will be married since the end of 1996. So that's like 26 years and counting by the grace of God. Like I always say when I come to places like this, I say it with humility. Because I know there are others who are way ahead of me. Let somebody praise the Lord. 
But what I like about it is that God opened my eyes. And eventually, when my wife and I, you know, um, connected, she also had her own encounter. God also opened her eyes. So God must be interested in your marriage. You know, he spoke to me, and I had clarity on it. I said, this, this was who to marry. You know he, 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 you know, he spoke to me in a language I will understand. You know, and I believe that like God will also speak to you in a language you will understand. When we ask doctor about hearing God, he always makes the point about desire, the power of desire, the hunger, the thirst. You know, the deep, sincere desire to hear God is real. You know, when you want God to speak, God will speak. I was telling them, um, um, in a, I think it was in church on Sunday, that when people at times ask the question, what if I am asking God to speak and I don't hear or he doesn't speak? So I said to them, and I'm saying to us, we have to be careful in asking that question. Because at times, it's almost a question I could imply, at what stage do I carry on if I haven't heard? Because it's not like we don't have our own ideas. You know, but like doctor talks about spiritual paralysis. You know, there are times when you have to be desperate enough to say, God, you must speak on this matter. I have to hear you. I don't want to go on the journey of marriage that I have never been on before on my own without some clarity from you. And I believe that when people are sincere about that prayer, God will direct them. Of course, God speaks in a multiple of ways, you know, and I'm sure God will speak to you in the language you understand in Jesus' mighty name. I believe that when it comes to marriage, and we have been taught that when it comes to marriage, God actually matches couples in marriage. You know, I mean, the, the stories in the Bible prove that. If you remember the story of Isaac and how he married Rebecca, you know, it clearly is a story about matchmaking that was orchestrated by God. And those that are attentive, they see God at work in their lives. Those that are paying attention, you know, I believe that God, you know, um, God, is a, God is a loving father. He wants us to hear him, you know. He's, he wants us to hear him. I like what, the way the Bible says, if, if you being earthly fathers, you know, um, I think it's in either Luke 11, 13 or so, where he says, if you as earthly fathers being, I mean, I'm trying to paraphrase, but it's almost like earthly fathers who are almost wicked can give good things to their children. How much more will your heavenly father give you if you ask him? In other words, our father in heaven is much more loving than earthly fathers. He's much more caring. You know, so I think we have to approach God from that point of view. And as we do so, God will speak to us in Jesus' mighty name. So that's the first principle that God has been involved in marriage from the very beginning. And if you ask him about marriage, you can't go better than that. The second principle is that two shall become one. The Bible teaches us clearly that when it comes to marriage, the principle is that two shall become one. As the Bible says in Genesis 2, uh, verses 24 to 25. Genesis 2, 24 to 25. New King James Version again reads... Genesis chapter 2, 24 to 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I believe that the two shall become one principle, if you consider it a principle, is probably one of the most important cornerstones of marriage, one of the most important principles in marriage. It's a fundamental premise of a happy marriage, without any shadow of doubt. You know, and the way to understand this principle, I will say a few things about it, and I hope you can relate to them. This is talking about alignment. When two things become one, it means that, like, they win together, they lose together. 
he's saying that like when people go into marriage and they're actually united into one, which is, means my interests and my spouse's interests are one. You know, and I come from that perspective of that understanding. It's very powerful. Because it means that what's good for her is good for me. And I can literally look at it from the point of view of trying to do what is best for her in every situation. You know, in fact, I believe that marriage is a very good place to learn about love. And the reason is that when people key into this principle, and many people do, which is a good news, many people do key into the principle of alignment in marriage, where they look after their spouses first. And when you do, you find that like you begin to get an understanding of what really love is all about. Because you begin to understand this self-sacrificing love that Dr. Nuzo talks about. You know, people who are in love with their spouses, you know, uh, they understand self-sacrifice love. Doctor always talks about how in the beginning when maybe the early days when, you know, the romance is strong and there's excitement in the air, the man could go to Mr. Big that is very far away and make all kinds of sacrifices, you know, to, to you know, make the wife happy or make the spouse happy. You know, the other principle that is here that I like to talk about is that marriage is not a zero-sum game. Some of you might have heard that term before, zero-sum game. A zero-sum game is a game where one person wins, another person must lose. In other words, there's a fixed reward that is to either be given to one and the other person loses, or at best, maybe you can cut it in half. You know, the classic zero-sum game is what you call tournaments. Like a football tournament is a zero-sum game. Once there's a winner, there's a loser. You know, and you can understand the contention, the rivalry, the, the, the fight, in quotes. You know, and it's set up that way. But the game of marriage, some people have said life is a game. And if you understand game as in game theory, game theory, by the way, is a field of science and maybe um, other fields as well. But certainly it's a field of science, built on mathematics and all that. And if you set up, if you think of marriage as a game, then it's not, it's not a zero-sum game. And the reason is that, like, you can win together. You can create synergy in marriage. One plus one is equal to three. You know, marriage is not one of those institutions where, you know, the fact that one person is winning, the other person has to lose. And I believe that this principle has all kinds of dimensions and that many of us miss it. Let me give you a, a few examples of how we miss it. If you find yourself, you know, in marriage where you think that your wife's gain is your loss, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, spouses frequently get into all kinds of arguments, you know, and when they get into those arguments, if you go and check really the underlying assumption, it's a question of like, why does he, why do you have to win? You know, it even extends to in-laws, you know, my in-law versus your in-law, your mother versus my mother, your brother versus my brother. This is all zero-sum game attitudes. Whereas what the Bible teaches is that the abundance mentality, that love doesn't actually finish. Love, you know, is inexhaustible. Love is a big deal. Just like knowledge, you know the way they say you give knowledge away and it still stays with you? Love is even more powerful. You give it away and it creates even more atmosphere for love. And I believe that one of the ways you will find the goodness of God in marriage and elsewhere is that like when you practice this so-called abundance principle, the abundance mentality, that there is enough to go around and therefore we're not trying to you know give to one at the expense of the other that you find that god will supply god will supply including materially because this is particularly rife in material things money you know things that time you name it but god is able to provide i believe that god gave me you know this revelation very early because early in my marriage you know 
when he looked at it, there was going to be tension between my mother and my mother-in-law and, and, and in-laws generally. You know, I remember God spoke to me clearly and said, love does not finish. There's enough love to go around. There's enough love for your mommy. There's enough love for your mother-in-law. There's enough love for your siblings. There's enough, you know, love just doesn't finish. You know, and if you think about it, you just find that like, really, you know, it's, we fall into the trap of thinking that like, by giving to one, um, um, I don't have enough left. And I pray that I will not fall into that trap in Jesus' name. It's even more so when you come to the marriage itself. And this applies to children. I can go, I have five children. I can go on and on. I believe that like the supply for each child is not at the expense of another child. So you can love your child, any particular child completely. And you find that like where that is coming, there's enough love to go around. Of course, with children, you'll always have their own rivalries. But one of the signals I send to them, at least my own children, is that they know that the love is there. You know, and when you focus on a child, you focus on that child. And you give them total support, total love. And you do the same thing for the next child, and it doesn't finish. You know, and I find that God actually multiplies the resources when you do it. You know, and eventually, they will learn from you and learn from that home that there's an abundance mentality that can power relationships, that can power human interactions. And this is something the church needs to teach the world. Because the economics, the way we know it, as it's taught in science and in you know, school, is a scarcity science. I'm sure you know that demand, supply, all these things are based on the laws of scarcity. That things actually run out. And it's not bad in terms of human nature and all that. But we need to understand that like when we talk about spiritual principles, kingdom principles that are higher, that's what we're talking about. But many of us are so wedded to the ways of the world that we cheat ourselves. We follow the world rather than teaching the world the way. You know, and even, even this thing we're praying, even when you come to this whole politics, it's, an, it's, it's, the whole, it's the whole scarcity mentality. It's a tournament style thing. It's this idea that like, you know, one tribe versus another tribe, one religion versus another religion, one church or denomination versus another. It's not the way of the Lord. There is abundance and there is enough love to go around. And I believe that God will open our eyes to see it in Jesus' mighty name. Now, this two shall be one, become one principle also applies to building a new home. Because I believe that when the husband and wife come together and they start a new journey, that journey, they're building a home, a nuclear family. <coughs> a nuclear family, as one, make up the nucleus. You know, which means that that family is stable, that family can raise children, that family can, you know, stand up and be counted. Because you need to be anchored. People need, that's why, in fact, it has been said that like part of the problem of society is that you don't have solid families, anchored families, you know, families that are strong, where you can raise children and raise people from. And they, and they go out and, um, and change their world. The two shall become one principle also means that you support your spouse, especially as it relates to just those areas of need. The same way, you know, the Bible says that men love your wives the way you love yourselves. You know, the same thing you know, whatever you're doing for your wife, you're doing it for yourself. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it for yourself. Because you're really one. You know, and those that understand that, understand that that's the way to go. They don't fall into this trap that like, why is she always getting the benefit? As if you are two separate people. Um, you know, the passage I read in verse 25, that's Genesis 2, 26. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I believe that what that naked and not ashamed is talking about is you have to be open with each other. You know, if you're not vulnerable and open in your marriage, where can one be vulnerable? 
you know? One can be vulnerable in their marriage. Knowing that your spouse will not take advantage of your weakness, of your vulnerability, or of your or to judge you. You know? It's a place where one can let down their guard and be at home. Just like people are at home with themselves. You know, because one should be at home with their spouse. Two that are naked and not ashamed. May God create an atmosphere, or may God help us to create an atmosphere where we can be naked and not ashamed in the sense of like that vulnerability, that openness, that safety, that safe heaven is our home. You know, and every couple needs to work at that to create that home. And I'll come back to this idea of making your home a place where you are comfortable. The other principle that builds on the principle of two shall be one, shall become one, is that two are better than one. Two are better than one. You know, and these are all principles of marriage. Two become one. But the interesting thing is that when you come together, you are better than any of you individually. As the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 9 to 12. These are all popular scriptures. But I hope that God will give you some new insights as we, as we reflect and meditate on these scriptures this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12 reads from the New Living Translation again. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? Verse 12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. There are three are even better. For a three-pole braided cord is not easily broken. You know, I... I, I, I Understanding the scripture has helped me enormously in my marriage. Because, first of, all, first of all, it brings understanding. You know, from the very early stages of marriage, I realized that my wife was different. You know, her background is different. The way she looks at things is different. You know, and again, this is something we've been taught here severally. But two are better than one. In other words, she compliments me. You know, what she brings to our marriage is complimentary, is additive. It adds to what I have. What I bring to the marriage adds to her. And the two of us together, even if I say so myself, are much better than any of us individually. And it's meant to be like that in a marriage. Now, why is this perspective important? The trap most people fall into, which creates incredible friction, is this idea like, why is she not like me? Why does she reason this way? Why is she comfortable this way? You know? And you find that he extends to everything. My wife, for instance, is very tidy. I'm not nearly as tidy, but it's all two are better than one. If one person has a, a tidier thing, I say, okay, bring it on. Let's keep a tidy home. <laughs> you know? But I'm just trying to say that, like, you can apply it to any area. The mistake you don't want to make is to fall into the trap that one is better than the other. You need both. You can find one person is more comfortable, maybe one person is more extroverted, the other person is more introverted. It just applies to so many things. But it's all good. It makes you more complete. It makes it complimentary. You know, I was dealing with somebody the other day, and the person was, you know, almost like a counseling session. And the person was talking about the one thing he asked for in marriage is that this guy is a very enterprising person, very, very enterprising, very successful. You know, it's one thing he said to God. I don't know, he told me some story about whether it's his mother or is it his mother. I mean, I think it's his mother, but somebody anyway who wasn't as enterprising you know, in the family he came from and didn't like the way the person got stranded. I think maybe the father died early 
and the mother was stranded because she wasn't as enterprising as she should have been. So she said, he said he made up his mind that his wife must be very enterprising. And this guy was almost in deep frustration because, you know, his wife is not as enterprising. Meanwhile, they have three children that have gone on to do incredibly well. They've gone to top schools in America, working all over the world. It sounded like a marriage, it sounded like a very happy home. So I had to talk to him and say, what exactly is, I don't understand what the problem is. This woman has worked with you to raise these children. You guys have lived in all parts of the world. I are doing so well. I said, this must be the work of the enemy. You know, you need to be careful now, right? I mean, nothing wrong with one trying to start a business for the wife or do something enterprising. But I was trying to make the point to him, and I don't want to overstretch this point, but brings other qualities. Because I happen to know the wife as well. She should not be treated as something to be sniffed at, as my people would say. Don't make light of it. Don't say, if you don't have the qualities that I'm strong in, your own qualities are, are weak. You know, you know what it takes to raise a Christian home? You know, we hear about the Wesleys. What's the mom say? Is this Susanna Wesley or whatever? You know, that raise, you know, John Wesley, you know, Charles Wesley. I mean, these are women that built homes. You know, and I want us to know that two are better than one. Of course, it ties into this principle that we are taught all the time that God matches couples in marriage or in marriages. Therefore, expecting our spouses to be exactly like us and to agree with us on everything rather than to compliment us is not wise. And this is something to pray about. I'm not saying that like you can't have what is right on an issue. But even how you get there, how you reconcile your differences is part of the art of marriage. How you come to agreement. Because what then happens is that because you complement each other, when you agree on something, it's very powerful. It means that both sides have weighed in, as we say. You know, their views have been factored in, and you reach an agreement. Ah, that's very powerful. That's very powerful. You know, and again, I, I, I refer to game theory. In game theory, the value of a player in a game, you know, like I said, game theory is a science, and you can actually measure things in a game theory context. The value of somebody in a game, how they measure it is that you take that player out. It's like a football game. You know, they have 11 players. If you take out a player and the remaining 10 are able to do everything you could have done, and this player is not missed at all, his value is actually zero. It doesn't sound emotionally right. Because at times, you might be dealing with two people who are very, very good and are very similar. They look very, very powerful. You know, but the thing is that they're exactly the same. That means any one of them can do what two of them can do. Therefore, one of them is actually redundant. One of them has a zero value in that situation. They need to be, they need to go and add something somewhere else. You know, of course, there is value in redundancy. Don't get me wrong. The way Stephen Covey put this, Stephen Covey is the guy who wrote that book, The um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You know, and it's a classic on personal effectiveness. Stephen Covey says, if two people have the same opinion, one is unnecessary. I don't want to talk to communicate with someone who agrees with me on everything. I want, to with, I want to communicate with you because you see it differently. I value the difference. This is something that is very powerful. Even this thing of valuing differences, I'm trying to learn it. I tell you, even at work. Because you know, there are times somebody will say something, you'll be like, ah, what are they saying? I always use this example because it's one of the best examples I've heard. Some of you will remember the company that was called Enron. Enron was this high-profile energy company that blew up. And then some lady who was working there at the time wrote like a, you know, like a postscript, like a, um, you know, some article afterwards. And she said something I, I always remember. She said, everyone got into trouble 
when when they have meetings and you say something, they say they, they don't say such stupid things around here. Shut up. You know, they start, you know, shutting people up. It's like your opinion is useless. Meanwhile, that useless opinion is what sank them because they carried on without those basic questions that people in the room could have asked, but they didn't let them ask the question. It's definitely in marriage. Some people shut down or stifle their spouses. I tell you something, and I speak for my own marriage. My wife, I like to get her opinion because it typically will be different from mine. And when, even if I don't agree initially, when I reflect on it, it's always additive. Additive means it always adds to my perspective and enriches the discussion or the situation in handling it. And we need that perspective. May God help us to come alive with this principle that two are better than one in Jesus' name. Can I also say something else on this? Because I know that this has come up even in the counseling and question and answer. No, they say, even if you are right, don't gloat. You know, because the other thing is also some people just have this superiority complex. You know, my opinion is better. I hear from God, you don't. Even if God spoke to you and your spouse had a different view and maybe the problem arose from there, please don't gloat. Don't um, try and, um, you know, um, bring airs into the marriage and start feeling cool with yourself at the expense of your spouse. May God help us in Jesus' mighty name. Another principle says, this is probably, you know, foundational. Bring God into your marriage. Bring God explicitly, totally, completely into your marriage. I believe that one way to interpret that scripture in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 2 of the second half, or second part, that says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Is that? Yeah, marriage that is united is very strong. Even if that not a Christian marriage. If they are united, united we stand, divided we fall. That's a principle in itself. But then when you bring God into it, the Bible says it is not easily broken. When God is present and honored in a marriage, it is very difficult to break that marriage. You know? If God is in it and he's present, people have to take God out first. And usually how do they take God out? You get into arguments and you get into divisions. You know, the Bible says it is in the midst of unity that God commands his blessing. So you get, you know, so you start creating strife and then suddenly people start to value their opinion more than that of God and they start saying this Christian thing self, it doesn't work. I mean, let's be real here. You know, what is being real? That is defining the problem they see in their spouse or that the way their spouse is handling the problem. You know, it's as if like we limit God and what he can do for us. I believe that marriage is supposed to help our faith to grow, our faith in God. Because it's a journey of faith. As you bring God into it, it doesn't mean that things will be easy. Don't get me wrong. People face all kinds of challenges in marriage. But the question is, how do you handle them? I'm sure you've heard us saying that life is 90%... Um, that, um, how do they say it again? Is it that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond? You know, when I think about that, assuming you believe that that saying even has some advantage. When I think about it, if a full 90% depends on my response, it's very empowering. I use that to encourage myself, no matter what I'm dealing with. I tell myself there is 90%. This problem, as big as it is, only 10%. doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with. No matter how big it looms, remember that it's only 10%. 90% is your response. Bring God into it. People think their own marriages are so uniquely difficult. Every time a person is living with their own marriage, you, say, you would think that people haven't gone down that road before. 
We need to meditate on Ecclesiastes 3.15. Let's read that scripture, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15. Because I think it might encourage somebody here today in dealing with one issue or the other in marriage. What does it say? Um, it says, that which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. I don't know if you understand what it's saying. Maybe you can read the New Living Translation. But it's talking about there's nothing new under the sun in essence. That's what it says. It's trying to say the way we get all excited and think what we're dealing with is unique. It's not nearly as unique as you think. There's no problem you're dealing with. Certainly if you bring God into it, that God will not give you a, a solution. What about the importance of the family altar when we talk about bringing God into, into your marriage? I mean, it is evidenced by the family altar. You know, there has to be an altar. You know, there has to be a place where you meet with God. Because couples will tell you that even if they are disagreeing and they kneel down to pray, at least for the one appear God, ah, they confess first. They repent. They confess. They wash themselves in the blood of Jesus. They say, Father, have I sinned in any way? People come to God with humility. Those that fear God, though. They humble themselves. That humility helps the marriage. It helps the marriage. And that's why it's good to say, let us pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's bring him into the marriage. Let's bring him into the situation. And as we do that, you find that when you have a conversation afterwards, it, you know, the tone is different. The perspective is different. People are more contrite, more broken, if they fear God. And I pray that we fear God in Jesus' name. You know, and um, giving God first place in all things is very important. The one I find very intriguing, and this is something working for me presently, is that I found that we started this, this um, practice where at the beginning of every year, we gather together as a family and we pray. As part of that prayer, we ask everybody to ask God one thing that you want to go into this our family altar and family prayers. One thing. And we document it. And then we pray. And I find that God answers those prayers. Last year was actually quite revealing and very profound. And then we've done it again this year. And God is answering, including, you know, my son said, for instance, that he wants Arsenal to win the Premier League. That's his prayer point. Guess where Arsenal is sitting now? I pray they win, no? <laughs> I said, maybe God wants to teach him something. But I can even answer a prayer that to do with sports. You know, because God wants them to realize early that he answers prayers. That's what he did for me. My, I came from a praying family, even if I say so. My wife teases me that when we met, I used to have these prayer points, which I'll write out. And I, I was living abroad. I'll send it to my mom, send it to my siblings, who were all in the faith, and they'll be praying for me. You know, thank God I've learned to pray for myself and the family altar. People still pray for me. Oh. One of the benefits of being a pastor, by the way, I'm sure Pastor Conrad will agree with me that, like, in that time, I say, what if God answered all these prayers? People are praying for us. People pray for you when you're a pastor. And I'm sure people pray for you in other situations as well. But on my, my birthday was recent, and I tell you, did I get nice prayer points? I said, God answers prayers now. You know, so I'm actually walking one, is it 10 feet tall? How do they say it again? Because I believe that so many prayers have been prayed. And God is answering them. And what a prayer answering God will serve. So I want us to know that like, you can have a family altar. And God will answer prayers on that altar. In a way that will build faith in the family. And it's so powerful. Because that was actually how God brought me, I mean, to, the, to, to be born again. Because I was born into the Methodist church. But in truly getting born again, it was this prayer answering power of God. I said, I want more of it. I wanted to get closer to him. I wanted to, you know, I just found that like the things that matter to me, career, you name it. When we prayed, God answered. 
And I said, let me, let me serve this God. May God answer your prayers and you build your family altar in Jesus' mighty name. The next one I want to touch on, that time is going very fast actually, is the power of agreement in marriage. The power of agreement in marriage. I've, sort of, I've, I've touched on it, but I want to use um, Matthew 18, 19 to support it. Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 says, and again, again I say to you, I'm reading the New King James Version. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You know, this power of agreement, of course, is a principle in Christianity. It's especially powerful in marriage. Because, I mean, first, there's so much alignment in marriage. You know, at times you can be praying with people. You don't know whether they, they are going left or you are going right, even though everybody is pretending that they agree. But in marriage, I mean, there's plenty of room for authenticity. There's plenty of room for agreement, for alignment. I mean, the kind of things you pray about, your children, your marriage, the church, I mean, your work. If you don't agree there, where are you going to agree? Some people are busy praying with somebody outside. For all you know, the other person you are praying with, nothing wrong with praying out with the outsiders. But the person may have their own issues. And become, you know, I had a friend, I have a friend. He likes the word, not that he likes, he, like, he uses the word distracted a lot. When you're talking about some, somebody, you say, okay, do you notice the guy was distracted? <laughs> Person you are praying with might be distracted. You know when somebody is distracted? They're concerned about something. They say, please, let's pray over this, my child. They say, yes, yes. But meanwhile, they are head are thinking about something else. That's not likely to be true if you, are, if, you are, if you are dealing with that in marriage. So I'm trying to say charity begins at home. Let us have agreement in our marriage, right? And then we also should have agreement in church with others. But I had a boss, a mentor. You know, he used to say that marriage is the most basic of partnerships that he's generally suspicious of anybody who is not able to make this partnership work. Particularly when he, de he deals with partnerships in the office. We also have partners in the office, you know, when we, when, when we own a business together or a venture together. But he says, go, go and let charity begin at home. Can we have a partnership in marriage? Even as we extend that partnership outwards, may God help us to have this agreement in marriage in Jesus' mighty name. I, my, 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 my wife and I, we've exercised the power of agreement in prayer in marriage. You know, just the idea that we believe God, that if we agree on this thing, he will do it. And God answers prayers. The testimonies are endless. Too many to count. You know, and it builds your faith because you see the answers. As the saying goes, a couple that prays together stays together. And because you complement each other, this power of agreement extends to other areas, not just prayer. Prayer is important. But it means that like, you can extend the power of agreement to issues, right? You are discussing something. You know, I mean, just look at just the journey of life. It may have to do with where you live. It may have to do with buying a house or renting. You know, I remember very early on, my wife had a body that we should get our own place. You know, left to my financial training, rent in Lagos. I don't know if people know the body. You know, the cost of rent in Lagos compared to the cost of houses. And it's been like that. Actually, from a finance theory perspective, it's better to rent. In theory, not in practice. In practice, it's better to buy. That's what I'm trying. It's better to own. But I'm trying to tell you that it's not everything you approach with, um, with what, what I call narrow financial sense. Because you might say, right, to build this place will cost 100 million, but to rent maybe it's 3 million. And you say, right, if I put the money in the bank, I'll be getting 10 million, and I'll be paying rent of 3 million, I'm making profit of 7 million. Never mind that the place will appreciate in value. But the point is, it's better to, at times, to listen to your wife and to build and own. Yeah? Pastor Buki is like, let's not even discuss that. It's better to build. You know, let's not even near there. 
build and own, build and own, build and own. And she's right. You know, but women tend to have a better sense. Anyway, I don't want to, some men will tell me they have a better sense in this. But anyway, I have found in many examples I've had, the wives have played a, an important role in nudging the family in that direction. You know, they, they tend to be sensitive to those things. And that's why husbands and wives, wives listen to their wives. You know, and um, I pray that we will listen to our wives in Jesus' mighty name. And our wives will also listen to their husbands. Husbands also bring a lot of wisdom. In fact, I believe that some of the wisdom men bring is heavenly wisdom. What do I mean by that? As a head of the home, are there things God will tell you? In my own case, God has given me dreams. He tells me things about my family. And thank God that they listen to me. Let somebody praise the Lord. The main point, though, is that you should compliment each other. The next principle says, choose the atmosphere you want in your marriage and home. Choose the ecosystem, the atmosphere. You know, as the saying goes, as you make your bed, so you must lie on it. So you will lie on it. So why don't you make your bed to be very comfortable? Why don't you build a very comfortable home? I chose early that I will, that will be happy in our marriage. You know? To give you an example of what it means to be happy in marriage, because it's not just mounting it. You have to demonstrate it in practically. For me, for instance, it is important. It was important for me then, and it is still important for me now, that my wife is comfortable in her own home. For me, that's a measure of, because I know that to be happy in that marriage, she has to be happy. She has to be happy. And this back to this no zero sum game thing. It's a clear case where my happiness draws from her happiness, and her happiness draws from mine. So if I'm wise about it, I will be focusing on making her happy. You know, and for me, it's an important test. Those things that don't make her happy, I generally tend to not be comfortable with them. Because I know my wife. You know the way the Bible says, husbands, know your wives and deal with them according to understanding. You know, you find that if you live with somebody, you'll get to know them. Even if you're a bit dull, you'll get to know them. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a genius. You know, and having lived with my wife for 26 years, I know the things that make her happy. So I might as well do those things. Some of them may be very small. But I tell you, over time, they work. She also knows the things that make me happy, and she does them. And then before you know it, you create a home where you are both happy. And even my children, I know how to make them happy. I always use the example of my own home, the home I came from. You know, my father had a sense of humor and really brought it to bear in the house. It was a fam you know, there was always laughter in my home because my dad could produce humor in any setting. I mean, it was a gift from God. You know, he would just, and at times he would, do, he would even be as if he's not listening. Then he would say something and everybody would just break out into a laughter. You know, and that created an atmosphere in my home that was, you know, where there was joy, there was happiness, there was laughter in the family. It doesn't mean that we had so much resources, but you wouldn't know if you came there. No wonder they say Nigerians are the happiest people on earth. Are we still the happiest people on earth we used to be? May God help us in Jesus' mighty name. You know, Dr. Nuzo tells us that in marriage, you have two people who can make each other incredibly happy or unbelievably sad, very sad. The choice is yours. And you'll be amazed. That's why I say we're not always wise. You'll be amazed how many unhappy homes are there. There may even be more unhappy homes than happy homes. Even though this statement is fundamentally true. In other words, the power is in your hands to change that atmosphere. It may require forgiveness. Maybe the person has done something very bad. And therefore, you need to forgive them. And then healing will take place and then happiness will return. But some people, maybe out of stubbornness, will say, no, this, this, this one, no. You know, some people just, you know, you know this high principle thing. Some people just sit on a high horse. 
come up with all kinds of principles. I was talking to a friend recently who had lived with their matter. And the guy was, I mean, you know when you say anger is tearing somebody up? What is it? He was part of a meeting where he didn't like the way he was treated in the meeting. He didn't like the way they acted on the matter he was dealing with. But it was, this thing was tearing him up. So I was trying to, he's not a Christian. He comes from under faith or under background. So I was trying to tell him why we Christians are big on forgiveness. Because I said this situation requires forgiveness for your own good. Because you are the one that is suffering. These people have gone to their own houses and are enjoying. And meanwhile, you are still suffering. That's the thing about forgiveness. When we say forgive, it's not just for the other person's benefit. It's for your own benefit too. You know, and the thing about love covering a multitude of sins is that like you need that to be covered anyway for the joy to be there. A home where people are always whining, complaining about one thing or the other. Who wants to live in that kind of home? You know? Where you are tiptoeing. You do this, they say, ah, but it's not done this way now. You should know that by now. You know, may God help us to build Christian homes and happy homes in Jesus' mighty name. You have a huge role to play in setting the atmosphere in your home. You know, you have a huge role to play. And I want to, if you take nothing else away, take this away. Let's reverse this trend of our happy homes. Let's build happy Christian homes. The principles of our faith are meant to produce the abundant life. If you practice them, that's what you produce. They may require a bit of humility. They may require you to eat the humble pie. Like Dr. Nusser says, he says, if you see a marriage that is working very well, a home that is very happy, somebody is paying a price. But I believe it's a price worth paying. Honestly, I honestly believe it. I think that price is worth paying. Certainly my own experience has been any other thing is irrational. It's not wise not to invest in having joy in your home. The next principle I want to cover briefly is avoid hindrances to prayer in marriage. The Bible has a number of hindrances. I've covered one on forgiveness and so on. But let me cover another one. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, this is the one men, most men are aware of. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the New Living Translation reads, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. I mentioned this earlier. Husbands, deal with your wives according to understanding, as the King James Version would say. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Treat her well so your prayers will not be hindered. That's a big point. I had a pastor that used to pastor my church. You know, he's moved on now. But he always reminded, reminded the man that, that they should go and check that husbands or men that treat their wives badly, that they, they, you know, they, 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 things don't go as well for them. They just don't prosper. He believed this. And when he said it, and I started trying to look at the few examples I knew where I felt the men were struggling to do the right thing. They didn't exactly seem to be prospering like the ones where they had invested in that relationship and the wife was praying for them and they had a Christian home. I'm not saying that's the only reason you should treat your wife well, but you certainly don't want your prayers to be hindered. Whether it's the wife hindering it or God himself says prayers are hindered if the man maltreats his wife. I mean, that's a serious warning. That's a serious warning for any man. And, and, and when I try to counsel men, I bring this up. You know, I say, please, for your own prosperity, for the sake of your family, go and sort this thing out. Go and sort it out. And usually they have their strong reasons. You know, where the wife may have messed up, or where, I mean, I was dealing with a particular case where the man said the wife is just so stubborn. She just won't listen. 
She just has a mind of her own. You know, and you know men are very, you know, they're, they're sensitive in this area. That's why we always remember to say, wives, submit to your husbands. You know? And, but I tell you something, there's also a way to get submission. I remember uh, a pastor that I came to preach to said, conquered by love. You know? There's a way you can use love to conquer. You know? And there's a way love also can conquer you. Can conquer a woman, right? I mean, just by loving her, which is what the Bible says we should do. You find that you are not, you are not, you are not negotiating in respect. It's free. Hello everyone, um, we've contacted the media team to tell them about the loss of sound and now video. Just give a second and I'm sure it will be restored. Thank you. We've covered earlier, you know, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I find in my experience and other things I have seen, that when husbands love their wives, you know, they prosper. They flourish. And I'm talking about genuine love. I, I, God loves it when it happens that way. And God is looking for model Christian homes. I told you that in 2010, God spoke to me. and said he was looking for champions of righteousness. And I know when we say righteousness, it might sound intimidating. What he's saying is just models, role models. Do you understand? Can we have Christian homes that people can see and know that it actually works? So it doesn't sound like it's theory, it's religion. It's just what they say. But go and watch your actions, it's different. May God help you, may God help me in Jesus' mighty name. I have a few more to cover, and I'll cover them in the next few minutes. The, the next one is the importance of fidelity in marriage. The importance of fidelity in marriage. This is something we talk about, but I think it's a big deal. You know, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about the consequences of infidelity, adultery, fornication, you know, um, lack of faithfulness in marriage. For instance, Proverbs chapter 5 deals with the perils of adultery and infidelity. Proverbs chapter 5, that's all it talks about. You know, and yet, I mean, many other scriptures cover that as well. Let me read an excerpt from them because it ties into this trap that people fall into. Proverbs chapter 5, I'll read verses 7 to 12, the New King James Version. Proverbs 5, 7 to 12 reads, Therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove from your way Sorry, remove from your way, far from her. Sorry, remove your way, far from her. He's talking about the moral woman. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when, you when your and your body are consumed. And say how I hated instruction and my heart despised correction. Let me tell you a story. You know, I had an uncle, you know, very, very wealthy man, very, very prosperous. But the man had his weakness of drinking and women. You know, he, he always goes to the club after work every day. He'll go there, stay there, drink, you know, till late. 
And of course, what follows is infidelity of sorts. And it was fairly well known. It wasn't something that was hidden. You know, do you know that by the time this my uncle died, the man was like desperately poor. But I remember we, when we went to him, because at a stage he became the traditional ruler of his place. You know, um, the mother and my father are like uh, siblings. So I went to him. I call him uncle because he's much older. You could actually argue he's my cousin. But he's, you know, when a person is like another generation, you call him uncle. Anyway, so we went to him. And I was trying to talk about now God has given him a throne, how he should bring Christianity into it. This is my uncle. He's very intelligent and a great storyteller. He started telling me a story. He said to me that when his father came to marry my mother, sorry, his mother, that the father went to church, that the mother was inside the church. And that's where they met. So church has been in this family from the beginning. That he doesn't know, you know, just, in fact, the wife who was sitting beside him when we gave this advice had to tell him that, won't you listen to this, your, you know, listen to them. You know, I'm just trying to say that like, it's not like these things are not known. Honestly, you know, the consequences of infidelity. In fact, one of the reasons when I, I mean, I stopped drinking long ago. And one of the reasons, alcohol completely, including wine and all that. Because I realized that it removes my inhibition. It could, it could remove one's inhibition. Because one, one of the things I decided as I got married was that infidelity was a red line. I said, I'm not going to do it. Maybe God had given me enough instruction, as this Bible says here, or revelation, that I just knew it was a trap. I wasn't prepared to fall into it. And like these things, you have to determine in your heart like the, the Daniel beforehand. It's not something when you are, you know, so I remember I went for a friend's thing and they gave us some wine and I, and I took a sip. This was early. And I noticed that my, my inhibitions were just going down. And I told myself, you know what, this wine thing, so what's it all about? You know, and since then, I don't. And I know, I mean, I'm not saying that it's a sin to have a sip of wine. But my point is that you have a choice. And depending on what price you are prepared to pay to defend that choice, God will take you very far. I find, for instance, I'm, I would like to think that I'm more filled with the Holy Spirit because it's the only source now for my own high. There's no alcohol to make me high. So I have to draw from the strength, you know, from, from the Holy Spirit. And that's what I tell my friends. And they agree with me, by the way. Like, when we go out, I mean, I have these friends that I you know, like maybe in business community. And they admit, they say, okay, it's always high. You know what I mean? So they, they agree with me that I don't need, I don't need an intoxicant. <laughs> Let somebody praise the Lord. I believe that like this has to be a red line because the consequences, that's why Joseph said, how can I do this wicked thing and offend God? He knew he had a destiny. The Bible says because of lack of vision, people cast off restraints. Without vision, men perish. What is it? Some versions say they cast off restraints. They do stuff as if there is no consequence. They don't know that it's their destiny that is being negotiated by the enemy. May God help you. May God help me in Jesus' mighty name. Let me deal with two more, then we'll take questions. The next one I wanted to cover briefly is partnering to raise godly children, to build Christian homes. The Bible says in Proverbs 22 verse 6, these are popular scriptures, Train children in the right way. And when old, they will not stray. This is new revised standard version, NRSV, which we use a lot in careless. Train children in the right way. And when old, they will not stray. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. New King James Version. I, my understanding of that scripture, because it certainly worked in my own family, well, and my nuclear family, now my, my family that I'm raising, is that like, if you if you model the way, 
if you have a family altar and you are conscious of the fact that these children are growing up before your very eyes, or uh, sorry, that they're watching you, you will find that like, you know, it's not like they won't be tested, but God will in this scripture will be true. They will not stray. When they stray, they will come back like the prodigal son. They will come to themselves and they will return because a foundation has been laid. You know? Now, I remember my wife and myself were thinking about this question of raising children at a point. And we said to ourselves that, you know, when you watch many Christian homes and many homes, you know, raising children is a real challenge. And the question is, how do you get this thing right? And the Lord gave us a scripture that we have used and it works. And I'm sure many of us are familiar with this scripture in Isaiah 54 verse 13. So that's the scripture we have used as an anchor to raise our children. He reads in New King James Version, Isaiah 54 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. So we, we, you know, it's almost like a prophetic word, you know, like a decree. Like when we pray, we just meditate on this scripture. You know, Father, all our children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be their peace. In righteousness shall they be established, you know, and so on. I mean, in fact, we read all the, we read all the way to verse 17. The point I'm trying to make is that, like, you can use scriptures to raise your children. You can anchor the raising of your children because they say faith comes from hearing the word of God. You can use the word of God as an anchor. And the children themselves, having been raised there, something happens in the, in the, in the spirit realm, I believe, that will, that will keep them going. You know, Dr. Luz often says to us that if we entrust our children to the Lord, he will take control and they will turn out right. That at times, it's not a matter of anxiety. It's not a matter of physical control. It's not a matter of like trying to do it by force. It's actually a matter of a spiritual thing. Where you bring God into the home, where you ask, where you, you put your trust in God, and you invite God to help you raise the children. And I believe that's what the Bible is talking about in Psalm 127, verses 1 to 5. Psalm 127, the scripture we know, one of the um, Psalms of Ascent. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. says, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. I'm sure you know what he's saying. If you bring God into it, he'll give you good sleep and he will do the work. Verse 3 says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. One of the things I want to take away from here is this, the first verse that says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Invite God to build your home and to raise your children and to build a Christian home. God will answer such prayers. And I believe he's answering us in Jesus' name. The final one is how you support each other in terms of your careers. You know, because marriage is a long-term thing. Marriage is a life to be lived Dr. Nunzo calls, calls uh, couples traveling companions. You're on a journey together. So I believe that as couples, we have to support each other's careers, our ministry, our calling, our journey of life. Two are better than one. You know, in fact, if you look at that passage, you know the way it says, um, it says two are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. Two are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. So I believe that couples, one of the principles is that how am I helping my spouse to succeed? You know, my wife has been a pillar of support in my professional career. Because from the onset, you know, it's almost as if like she was even more interested in my professional career than her own career. You know, so we pray about it, we talk about it, we work on it together. You know, and 
that means that like even when it came to time, I remember she we we, we teased John about the journey we went to where we we're gonna start the firm, African Capital Alliance, and I came back to start because I was living in South Africa, but I had to negotiate with my partner at the time. And she'll be, you know, in the background when we're having the conversations. You know, but the thing is that like having that support is essential. You know, because you pray together. You know, when I call, I was called to go and serve in Abuja, you know, I mean having my wife went with me there, we set up a home there, or we set up a, you know, I guess I can call it a second home there. And you know, just that support. And of course, we're, we maintain our home here as well. Because our children were still having to go through the journey of life. I wouldn't want any disruption. So it helped that like, you had a couple that were united. So even if I was in Abuja for part of the time, she was here. And I tried to come as frequently as I could. You know, but we also partnered in finding the right opportunity for her. I remember when we were in South Africa, she had to take a course, a management course, you know, to bolster her career. And I remember she wrote a paper on the kind of business she will start. Eventually, God gave her something that, you know, she's comfortable doing. But the point is, that journey, we have been in it together. And it's made all the difference. It's made all the difference. And as I've become more active in ministry, she has also supported me, you know. And of course, with five children, one of the key priorities, one of the things we had to prioritize was raising these children. And my wife actually made that her priority, devoting more of her time, you know, and so on and so forth. And it included at times, you know, living in other places when our children are in school, as we have had to do and as we are doing. So the point I'm trying to make in all this is that these principles work. And the ones I've shared are the ones that have worked for me and I believe will work for you and are working for you. And I'm sure nothing I've said here will come as a surprise. So I believe that God will give us the grace to actually put into practice what we know. Because if we put into practice what we know, the results will surprise us. You know, I call it a journey of faith. But God is faithful. God will exceed your expectations in Jesus' mighty name. I would like to take a few questions. I know that some of these things may sound a bit theoretical unless we have questions. So I told myself that I actually wanted to allow more time for questions, but let's see how we go. Here we are. Okay, good morning, Pastor. Good Thank morning. you very much. A question from online. So what price did you have to pay to build unity with your wife? Okay, do we take the question? Okay, let's take that question. Let's take them one by one. So what no. price did you have to pay to build unity with your wife? It's a very good question, and I like that question. And I will give you one example that comes to mind. I believe that there's a price to pay. That's a principle. So that question is a principle. There's a price to pay. And the price to pay is that you have to know both when to let go and when to sacrifice. Let me give you an example. You know, I talked about in-laws, for instance. You know, when we got married initially, I tell people, I didn't realize that, like, this relationship between us can be quite contentious. We invited my mom and my mother-in-law, because we were living in South Africa, we invited both of them to South Africa at the same time, because we were leaving to come back here. And I tell you, they, they, they created some tension in the home. We were living in a flat. We had moved out of the house we had owned, in quote. I moved into a flat where we were going to live from. And it wasn't a very big place, so we all had to manage as it were. But you could see the atmosphere was a bit tense. But what was interesting, was that when we then came back to Nigeria, that atmosphere could have carried over. But God spoke to me and said, and I covered it. God said to me, you have to love your mother-in-law the same way you love your mother. Just love your mother-in-law as your own mother. You know, just, and I understood what he was saying. And while I won't call it a price, but making that investment means that like, first of all, you already shut up the devil. I don't know what the devil was planning, but I didn't, I didn't want to find out. I wasn't interested. You know, when you say they shut something down, you just shut it down. You know? Now, there are times when if in-laws things come up, 
you know, my spouse might be sensitive, and I know that, like, ah, you have to handle this thing with wisdom because you want unity. You want her to be comfortable in her home, you know, and you want that home, first and foremost, to be a nuclear home. You know, I mean, you know my siblings, you know my mom. I come from a large family. So if you're not careful, you can actually have a family, your nuclear home be an extension of your, the family you're coming from. But your spouse also wants to build a nuclear home. You know, so that's one example, right? And I say that to say, not to say that like, once you make the investment, by the way, you find that it pays back. You find that whatever you're looking for, God will supply it more than enough. Like I said, the love is enough to go around. Is it resources? God will provide the resources. A lot of the things people fight over. Have you brought God into it? The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll grant you the desires of your heart. You know, so that's an example. You know, but I hope, I hope, um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, another question say, how did you overcome differences in opinions with your wife in raising your children? I would like to deal with differences in opinion generally first, then I'll come to maybe raising children. The first thing is that thing I said that like, the most important insight or perspective is that two are better than one. That we're not meant to necessarily have the same opinion or, the, or this thing. If you combine it with the, third, with the other principle about you know, bring God into your marriage, which means you are going to pray about it. Then what tends to happen is that you listen. Over time, you realize that like, as Dr. Nusso tells us, God can speak through anybody. God can speak through your wife. God can speak through me. The key is humility. The Bible says be quick to listen, you know, and slow to anger, you know, and so, uh, and slow to speak as well. So in a sense, you know, the key is to listen. What happens is that we tend to feel threatened when somebody has a different opinion. Threatened to the point at times we don't even want to listen. So almost like, I don't want to hear it. No, 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 no. You have to tell yourself, okay, Chuku, calm down. You want to hear it. You are going to hear it first. After you hear it, then you take a deep breath, as my wife would say. You know, and maybe even pray before you respond. There's something called para. It's a principle. I learned it actually from this, my, um, um, it's a, it's a, it's a network of executives I belong to. He says, pause, absorb, you know what's pause? When, so, like if somebody speaks to you, don't just react, pause. Absorb what has been said, then reflect on it before you act. Para. That's what Dr. Nuzo calls spiritual paralysis. Para. In that process, you are praying, and then you, you get it in. When you do that, you find that like, it's easier. Now, when you then bring it to raising children, the key is, remember we said all our children shall be taught of the Lord. What is God saying? You pray together. We know that we want to raise our children right, right? So that's an objective. Nobody wants the children to go astray. So you might find that like in some areas, my wife might pamper my children in more than I would think I would. There are other areas where I might pamper them more. But we actually complement each other. That's what I would say. Now, even where there have been differences in opinion, we have resolved them over time, right? And they've worked out well, and they continue to work out well. But it's their journey. The key is humility, and to keep your eye on the big picture, and to bring God into it. In my own case, even if I say so myself, I respect my wife's opinion. I don't know about those that don't respect the views of their wife. You, you will obviously be tougher if you think the person is saying nonsense. I certainly don't, I don't think so. I think she's very deep, very intuitive, and very sound. Absolutely. You have five children. <laughs> yes. How did you and your wife agree on, on that number? It was a journey of faith. It was a journey of faith. Initially, my wife was like, she wanted many children, you know, but this was just a thought, right? My wife, I mean, is a homemaker. She loves the family. She loves the home setting. 
So she was quite happy to have children. You know, I thought maybe we'll have three. You know the way it is. So we had two. We had two girls. By the time we are having the third one, we thought it was a boy because we prayed for a boy. We didn't even check. We walked by faith. And my third daughter came out. And I tell you, all these children are wonderful. You know what I mean? So that's the caveat. You know, we live life forward. We understand when we look back. I feel so blessed. So the third one came out. And we had no regret. It's not like the journey of faith. Because every one of the children is special. And my third daughter is even extra special, if you can say that. And then we decided, okay, that we would um, pray, you know, and we waited. After my third daughter, we waited. About, it was after four years and we had another child. And this time around, we also believed for a boy, right? But no, I think it was in the fourth one, actually, we believed for a boy. I think the first three, we just, um, I, I, I might not be getting this I think we may have believed. But I know in the fourth one, we thought it was going to be a boy, but it was a girl. But God spoke to me before. Right? God, that's why, if you hear me saying the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So at that stage, really, we were on a spiritual journey, honestly. So God spoke to me and made it clear to me that, like, it's like, do you want a proper child or do you want your own child? And it's like, I want what you want for me. So when my fourth daughter came out, I was very sure this was a gift from God and she is like extra special. I, you know, we call her precious because this was like, an answer from God. You know when you pray for something, Dr. Nuzo says, you cannot be better than God can make you. God gives you something better. You know, she's gifted in every way, just straight from heaven. So that, with that love and excitement, I was quite happy to stop, right? But to cut a long story short, in a very prophetic way, God gave us another child after about four years, you know, and we had a boy. Now, but every one of them at that stage, at some stage, it became a spiritual journey. So it was a journey. But my wife and I didn't disagree. I supported her fully. She supported me. And we actually enjoyed it. One thing I would say is that, like, enjoy the journey. The journey is important. You know, I could go on and on, but it was, it, the journey is even more important than the result. We went through a journey with God. And my faith grew, you know, and my understanding and work with God grew. And I'm all the better for it. So that's the way it is. So when you have five, don't think it was just in a swoop like this. It was a journey of faith. Let somebody praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You're still on that journey anyway. Yes, so <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, what compromises or sacrifices did you or your wife have to make in your career or business in order to help the other succeed? These are all excellent questions. Some of them I touched on. I think, I think this, one, this one relates even more to my wife than myself. From the beginning, you know, she wanted us to complement each other. So she wasn't pushing her career or like, she left her job, for instance, she was working in Nigeria in a professional firm while I was working in South Africa. She was quite happy to let that job go and come and join me. So when she joined me, she took a course, right? And then I continued what I was doing and then I had to move. I and mean, so in a sense, I would say she's made more, much more of a sacrifice in terms of her career. But what God did is that like, God gave us an opening to start something where she would work where we are part owners, you know what I mean? And this was something we decided because we, we didn't rush to look for work for her when we came back to Nigeria. It was as if like we wanted something that would be flexible because my own work might be more demanding in terms of time. You know, and God opened the door and she's been there since then and it's really worked out very well. But then there was sacrifice involved. And I hope that trade-off couples make it, you know, two are better than one and two shall become one. If you're on the same, if you are together and you're building a home together, I think 
you'll find that those trade-offs can be made. But it's a very good question, and it, is, it will vary from one couple to the next. What difficulties did you or your wife have in your marriage as a result of challenges in one of your children? Yeah, these are all great questions, by the way. So what I would say is that, like, my answer to that would be this way, that we agreed early, or put it this way, we understood the power of agreement early. So in dealing with my children, and I believe that I've led the way in this, I insist on agreement with my wife. You know what I mean? So that means that when we're dealing with the children, I mean, they're close to us individually, you could say. They're close to us individually, but I don't let them, I don't let them, you know, like, divide us, if you know what I mean. I don't let them divide us, which means that, like, we, which means that, like, we, we, we talk as a couple, you know, in our, you know, in our, in our room, in our, on our altar, and we sort of agree how to work with our children, right? So you find that when the difficulties come, which they will, life is a test. We've had to deal with difficulties. But in every case, you know, we insist on standing together in agreement and taking it to the Lord in prayer. And then we deal with it. Some of the other times, you might deal with it for years, you know? We're still dealing with challenges because as the children grow up, they manifest differently. They have different issues, but you have to walk through them. But the key is that power of agreement, and the children will see it. And we complement each other. So my wife, the way she relates to the children is different. So she's, in some respects, much closer to them, right? Whereas maybe I come more from fatherhood, principle, you know, provision, you name it, right? But the priest in the house, they know I will pray. So when they are coming to me and we're talking about it, they know it's going to end in prayer. You know, but, they, but, but it's, I believe it's working out well. Like um, my sister reminded us, it's still a journey. Or you reminded us, it's still a journey. It's a journey of faith. But I think the key is that agreement. When the couple is united, you can handle any challenge. Whether it's to do with the children or anything else, that unity is important. It's incredibly important. It's huge. It's a big deal. And I can, that's why when I see this rife, strife, issues in marriage, ah, you feel like the enemy has done this. Because when the converse is true, when that unity is not there, even small problems can overthrow the marriage, overtake the marriage. Any question in the room? Any question in the room? Okay. Another question is, uh, how important is it for there to be a clear vision before submission because becomes an issue? How, yeah, okay, yeah, I think first question is, how important is it for there to be a clear vision or mission before submission becomes an issue? The way I understand that question is related to this issue of, um, you know, man being the head and wife submit to your husband. That's where I understand that question. And it's like, what if the vision is wrong? Or what if there's no vision or the man is going the wrong way? I would say that, again, I'm speaking from my own experience and what I know from scripture. This question of husbands love your wife is in that mix as well. This question of understanding is in that mix, right? So when you talk about vision, for instance, you know, I believe there is a discussion to be had, right? And that discussion is helpful because two are better than one. Otherwise, the vision may be the vision of one person, and it may be God told you and it's fine, but it would be nice to carry your wife along. So what I find, at least in my own experience, is that there is power in that dialogue. You know, even when we're trying to do a vision, there was a time I went to some, again, 
leadership training or retreat or something. And they encouraged us to do some kind of life plan or vision and all that. I remember my wife and I went together. There was a, a, you know, there was a coach that was supposed to help. We went together and we enjoyed the experience together. You know, I don't know how much we got out of it, but we did, we went together. You know, and I know couples that insist on being together on these things. And that's really what I want to emphasize. You know, I'm not saying that you can't bring different opinions. I'm not saying the man should not lead, but you lead with love. You lead with understanding. You lead with spirituality, which means humility. You lead with grace. You know, and I find that when you do that, you will enjoy more than enough respect and submission. At least that's been my own experience. You know, I know that you know, some situations may be more, 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 more testing or tasking, but I believe these principles will still hold. This principle of agreement, of leading with love, leading with understanding, bringing God into it, and making it practical. Understand your wife. For me, one of the most important anchors is understand your spouse. I know my wife's strengths because I've studied her and she knows me too. We are so, I mean, we've been married for 26 years. A course I've been studying for 26 years. If I can't understand it, I'm very dull. And counting. You know, so I tell myself, don't deceive yourself. If you know your wife and you're pretending you don't, and, you, and you, maybe you get angry over something she did. Meanwhile, you know, because you, you know what she will do. Is it really a surprise? Come on. You know, is it the first time it's coming up? God will help us. Okay, on the, taking on the issue of leading, the husband leads, how important is it for the head to lead by example, not demanding fellowship? So, I think leading by example is a, is a principle. It's a principle because if you don't lead by example, they may not follow. And remember, follow is not what they do when you are there. Let's start with even children, right? Teach the children the way they should go when they grow up. I was in a setting very recently. You know, and I was telling them, and you know, this same setting I was talking about, because certain of people from the marketplace, but leaders, CEOs from marketplace, and we we're talking about family. And I had told them before that if you put, if you set the right example, that your children will tend to follow it. You know, and the key is the example. You know, because if the example is right, they need to see that this thing works. What is at stake is far too important for you to bluff your way. You know. What is, in, what is at stake is far too important for people to just say yes sir, and start going. It doesn't matter which part of it you're dealing with. Spare a thought for your spouse. Spare a thought for your children. You know, so when you understand that and you know what really works, you go to the Lord in prayer and say, Father, help me to live by example. This applies to even in the church. You know, you can come and preach all these sort of highfalutin messages and high pro, you know, powerful messages or whatever. But the husband man must be the first partaker of the fruit. You have to ask God for help. Because at times, you, you have to own up and say, you know what, I'm preaching to myself too. But at least let people see the authenticity and the fact that there is integrity. You know? And then I think the followership will be there. And even when you have difficulty in followership, it's also good to apply the same principle. Remember, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond. Your response is 90% of the answer. And when you realize, it's so empowering. When I realized that, like, I love the idea that I have a choice, how I respond. You need to be inside me to understand how big a deal it is for me. And let me tell you where it came from, by the way. You know, I used to play games. I tell people I played board games. And I played with people who are very good at this thing, who are champions, national champions. And these guys, ah, you learn a lot from them. When you give them a hand and you play, and they come, they, 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 they just go quiet on you. By the time they play, you are finished. 
I mean, they call it a killer instinct. They finish you off. So when you have the power to respond, don't, don't toy with it. Ah, it's a big thing. The guy acts like a madman. You just calm down. Say, so wait till you see my response. You will know that like the, the, the said man has his own life and the life of the madman in his hands. Do you understand? Somebody gave me that proverb when somebody was picking a fight with me. Or, well, you know, we had a situation. And a man came to visit me and he gave me this advice. He gave it to me in Igbo. And I've never forgotten it. He said the Igbos have a saying that the same man has his own life and the life of the madman in his hands. That is the one that determines the outcome for both. I said, ah, I have to be the same man. Oh. There will be no death in this situation. So when these things are raving, you have to be the same man. You know, and God will help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Two more questions, please. How does the husband communicate directions in the family if there is any? Well, I'll give you some examples. I don't know, you know, that's a very broad question. But I, I started off by saying this issue of having a family altar is important, right? So the family altar, for instance, we used to say, bring your prayer points. Let's pray about them. And I like the one of saying one prayer point, you know, just so that's so, so what's the top of the list. And it works. When, when it comes to direction, I find that, like, because we can have different points of view on any matter, but when we talk about it and we pray about it, we come together, reaching agreement with your spouse is key. Like I said before, right? So that when we start talking about direction and all those things, it's not as if, like, it's random and it's, like, just coming from nowhere, right? I find that in my own setting that... When something is important to me, I discuss it with my wife, and generally she agrees with me. There are cases where when something is important to her, she discusses it with me, and it's not very often that you disagree. There are cases, and when those ones come up, you then pay attention to them, and you walk through it, right? And when you walk through it, you land. You know? So I think that issue of direction, when it comes to children, for instance, again, following Dr. Nuzas' counsel, we give them a lot of room. You know, things like career, you know, the way people say, we haven't told our children what they must study in school or... You just create the atmosphere, you know, and you watch them. Some will say watch them like a hawk, right? You know, you are close to them. Like I said, my wife is very close to my children. She talks about everything with them. So she's on the journey with them, and we're on the journey together as well. So I think that journey, when you bring God into it, then that direction, you know, will, will flow from there. If you wanted to take it to doctor's level, you would say that, like, we don't make decisions. <laughs> God will direct have you dealt with differences in money or expenditure decisions and how were you able to resolve these differences? So when it comes to money, my attitude and my principle is the abundance mentality. And I know that this may not be true in every case, but it has worked for me. Which means that like, I always believed God for abundance, right? And that abundance gives me choices, right? So I like to, I, I, from, from a very early stage, I started praying for and asking God. I wanted to operate where I can do any and everything. So the only issue is really what, what does God want me to do? You know, for some people, they will say, they start from a scarcity. Okay, the money is not there, so what are we going to do? And it's true. You know, so that's one level. And let me even deal with that level, because that level also applies to us. When we got married initially, you know, we didn't have that much. I remember my wife teases me that I don't know whether it was 1,000 rands, but it was a small amount that we had to work with as our family because she came to South Africa, she wasn't working. But that was what we could afford or what the budget could allow for the family expense every month. You know the way you get the money and then you plan. But, you know, I don't recall, maybe things get rosier with her, but I don't recall that it was too much stress. 
she thought I was stingy and frugal. She reminds me when she came to visit and I was like almost prizing things with her. Say, how much is this one? <laughs> you know? Maybe I've conveniently forgotten. That's why I said, let me deal with that one first. But I think it's a journey. You find that when you go on that journey together, by the time you start living with money issues later, right, you, you know, a pattern would have emerged. So for me, for instance, the pattern that has emerged is that like, if I agree with it, I'll find the money. You know what I mean? If I agree with it. If I don't agree with it, we'll discuss it. But I don't want to be constrained. I mean, let me, let me give you an example. Somebody asked about children before. One of the issues my wife had, actually, I just remember this and it's true. When we were talking about children and I was ready for us to have more children, my wife was talking about education and, you know, to give them the quality education they will. And I remember telling her, she still reminds me, I said, it's not a problem that we can afford to train our children and even others. You know, so when the school fees come out, you know the school fees can be quite heavy if your children are schooling abroad. <laughs> she said, remember what you said though. <laughs> you know, you use your mouth to say that it's not a problem. The money will be there. But God has been faithful. In order, God has been faithful. So I believe that like, you know, if you want to do the right thing and you bring God into it, God will supply. Some of the time, God will test you. You may not have, and it could be a test. You know, and the quicker you pass that test, the better. My view is that if you pass the test, abundance will come. That's my own experience. You know, so it is important that people pass the test early. Because, you know, it's when we get to heaven, we know all the answers. But I tell you something, I suspect that in many cases, people are still repeating. You know this thing of going around the mountain over and over again? You know, if you are not, if, let's say, if you got money, you become arrogant, you become very proud, maybe you can't even, you won't be coming home. Maybe that might also explain why God is saying, let's limit, let's defeat this thing. You know, so I think men and women and Christians have to tell God, here I am, send me. Not, I'll be loyal, I'll be a steward. And then you see what God will do. I am telling you that if you pray that prayer and you mean it, and God knows he can trust you, you will know that he's a God of abundance. He will provide. He will. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I asked my wife before if she wanted to say anything. She said no. I don't know. Honey, do you want to say anything now? One word or two? I've said it all. I asked her before. You know, it's part of honoring your wife. I said, do you want to say anything? She said, no, I should carry on. And of course, when she says that, I have to have her permission for her to say anything. Let somebody praise the Lord. Okay, so we're going to pray now. You know, we're just going to pray briefly. I know our time is fast spent. We normally don't stay this long in careless. We try to finish at 10. But, you know, I wanted to take the questions. So let us pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Brethren, what I've shared with you may even come across as if like it hasn't focused enough on the problems and the issues people are dealing with. And that will be correct. And that's why we must go to the Lord in prayer. Because the truth is that like I can share, say all this, but only God knows, you and God know what you're going through. God knows the challenges you face. And he knows what to do about them. So I think we would have been letting you down if we don't finish in prayer. And ask God to come into your own situation. Say, Father, you can bless me. Father, you can visit me. Father, you can help me. You know the area of my struggles. You know my limitations. I can't handle it on my own. Marriage can be very complicated unless you intervene. Please come and teach me your ways that I may follow them. Come and help me to see what you want me to see. 
Open my eyes to see. Come and change my perspective. Father, that stubborn problem in my marriage. Come and intervene. I pray for divine intervention. That issue with my child. Father, come and heal. Father, come and bless. Father, come and set the tone and point the direction in which we should go. That value of decision, that area where we need to make a decision, come and give us insight and direction. My Father, my God, come and help us to build Christian homes. We want to be role models. We want to be the light in society. And we cannot do it without you. Therefore, we invite you this very morning, this very day, to come and take center stage. Come and lead and let us follow. Come and bless as only you can do, Father. Let this gathering today not be in vain. Let there be many, many testimonies of divine intervention, of the blessings of the Father, of the goodness and mercy of God, of the abundance of your grace. Oh, that you have mercy, Father. Oh, that you will visit us today, Jehovah. We invite you, Father. Have your way, Jehovah. In Jesus' mighty name, we have prayed. Let somebody praise the Lord.